All right, buckle up. We're going to go fast. Notes are online, so you can get the full version there. Um, this is the beginning of the third week of 50 Days to Fire. So if you are fasting and praying with us, don't do it like in front of people. You can be like on the inside. Yeah, way to go, right? Thank you so much. Listen, we believe that God is moving in our church and in our city. And what we're doing through 50 Days to Fire, we're just like saying, hey, God, we're creating space for you to come and fill. And we're doing a series called Burn, and we're asking that question underneath the word. What happens when God answers by fire? Problem is that that might not be the first question that we have to ask, right? And so the, last week we talked about buying the field. Today we're going to talk about rebuilding the altar. Next week we're going to talk about stretching the tent. And then on the final Sunday, June the 9th, we're going to talk about receiving the fire. Listen, before we can even answer that question, what happens when God answers by fire, we have to actually give God something to answer, right? So I, I don't, I'm not going to teach on 1 Kings 18, the whole thing. It's a great story. That's what we're going to spend our time um, in, that, in that passage, the last Sunday of this series, we'll, that's June the 9th, Pentecost Sunday, will be in 1 Kings 18. But let me just give you a quick snapshot of it so you can kind of see where we're going today. Is that cool? So 1 Kings 18 uh, is this great showdown. If you, were, if you were raised in church, you probably heard stories about this. This, If you weren't raised in church, it's okay. Just think of your, the greatest epic movie you've ever seen, and it's kind of like that, right? So Elijah is a prophet of God, and he has this showdown on top of a mountain with these prophets of a false god named Baal. Now, really, in 1 Kings 18, what's happening is Elijah's going head-to-head -head with Ahab and Jezebel. All you need to know about Ahab and Jezebel is that they were bad, bad people. You know how we know? Nobody names their kids Ahab and Jezebel, right? That's how we know. When, when the whole world stops naming their kids after somebody, that's like, like nobody's like, hey, Hitler Jr., right? That, that's not happening, right? We don't name our kids after them. So they were a bad people, and, they, and Elijah has this showdown with them on Mount Carmel, right? And so here's what happens. He's going up. He thinks he's the only one. More about that in a couple of weeks. He thinks he's the only prophet of God, and he says that he's going to go up against 450 prophets of Baal. Y'all know one versus 450, not good odds, right? You with me on that? That's early for math, I know, but you got that, right? So what I want you to see is where does this phrase, what happens when God answers by fire, where do we get that, right? And so we get it from what Elijah said to all the people. I'm just going to read it to you quickly, 1 Kings 18, verses 22 through 24. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. That's a lot of bull. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood of the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of my God. You see the showdown coming. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. I love the last line of that in the New International Version. It says this, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Now, that's where that phrase comes from. What happens when God answers by fire? Because we serve a God who answers by fire, right? But this morning, I want us to look at one verse at the beginning of this story that just jumps off the page to me. It's 1 Kings 18.30. And here's what it says about Elijah. He repaired 
the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He repaired the altar. He rebuilt the altar that had been torn down. I believe this. Before we can see the fire of God, we've got to rebuild the altar of God. That's what I want to drive home this morning. It's good for us to say, hey, God, come, answer by fire. And he's like, um, where would you like me to put that fire? And so Elijah rebuilt the altar before he prayed for the fire. This morning I want us to talk about what that looks like. What does it look like to rebuild the altar? So let's talk about this. Um, to rebuild the altar, we need to develop an altar ego. All right, let's talk about this. What is, um, in, in, in the Bible, an altar? I mean, it means all kinds of things, but can we, just, can we just like break it down and say it this simply? An altar in the Bible represents a place where humanity meets with God. Okay, so like sometimes they're, they're slapping a bull up on there, or maybe there's like a goat they're pulling in, or sometimes they would actually do like, if you've been reading the Old Testament, you've read all kinds of sacrifices, like there's wheat sacrifices, and there's bread, and some of y'all are like, yeah, I'm good with the bread sacrifice, I'm giving God the crust, right? <laughs> I get it, right? There, all kinds of stuff would get put up on an altar, but at the altar is where humans met with God, right? There's a, it's a meeting place, and things would change at the altar. Right? That bull that was just a bunch of meat turned into an actual sacrifice that made a way for sinful man to be around a holy God. So it was a place where, where we would meet with God and, and there'd be something would change on the altar. People had personal encounters with God, they changed as a result. So then that's what an altar is. What's an ego? Kind of a rhetorical question. I don't want to go all Freud on you, right? But an ego. Very simply is what we think of ourselves. It's how we would say, like, this is my identity, right? This is my ego. So if, if somebody has um, a big ego, do you know people like this? Big ego? If somebody's got a really big ego, what we would say about that person is they're full of themselves. You know people that are full of themselves? <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm sitting next to them right now. There's barely oxygen for me, right? They're full of themselves. Right? So if, if, an, if the ego is what we think of ourselves, if we think somebody that's got a big ego is full of themselves, what I want you to see this morning is somebody that has an alter ego would be somebody who has emptied themselves. Now, I need to explain this to all the grammar nerds in the house. I didn't misspell the word. I know what you're thinking. Uh, I'm sorry, Pastor, but alter is spelled with an E. Yes, it is. Like if you alter something, that's spelled A-L-T-E-R. But if you alter something, what that means is you just modify it, right? Um, it doesn't really change. It just gets modified. People, not me, I've never done this, but people have been known to alter wedding dresses. Yes? But they never turn into yoga pants, right? They're still wedding dresses, right? They, they've modified it, but it's not been changed, but when we talk about the altar, A-L-T-A-R, what I'm saying is we want to have an alter ego with an A, the kind of, kind of identity that doesn't just get modified but is radically changed by a meeting with God. Make sense? Make sense? Because we've got to develop this alter ego. We want to become people of his presence, people of sacrifice, people determined to meet with their God. So, First thing, if we're going to rebuild the altar, we've got to develop an altar 
ego. Um, I, I love what, what Elijah does in this story. He, he, um, he doesn't take the easy way out. And don't show me your hands if you're the kind of person that takes the easy way out, right? He doesn't take the easy way out. He didn't take shortcuts. What I want you to see now is that if we're going to develop and rebuild the altar, we've got to not take the shortcuts because if we take shortcuts when we're rebuilding the altar, it can, it can lead to all kinds of loss and pain, right? Weird story in the Old Testament. I'm going to read it to you really quickly. It's found in 1 Chronicles 13, verses 9 through 12. Um, I'm going to read a few more of those verses if you are on the Bible reading plan. Sorry, if you're on the Bible reading plan with us, you read this today. That's, that's just like God. How does God pull that off, right? How does, it's just, we could never plan that. So 1 Chronicles chapter 13, 1 through 12. Here's what I want you to see as we read this story, that we can't take shortcuts when we're rebuilding the altar. Verse, 13, verse, um, verse 1 says this, David consulted with all his officials, including the generals and captains of the army. Then he addressed the entire assembly of Israel as follows. If you approve, and it's the will of the Lord our God, let's send messengers to all the Israelites throughout the land, including the priests and Levites in their towns and pasture lands. Let us invite them to come and join us because it's time to bring back the ark of God, for we neglected it during the reign of Saul. Quickly, what is the ark of God? So we're talking about rebuilding the altar, yes? So the altar would be the place where the presence of God was men met with God. The Ark of the Covenant was what would be inside the Holy of Holies. It was where men would stand before God. They would meet with God. So the Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence. You with me? I know that's a lot, right? It's a big mouthful. The Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. The altar is where we meet the presence of God, right? So as we're reading through this, you hear Ark of the Covenant. I want you to be thinking, like, we're, wait, we're rebuilding the altar. What David's trying to do is bring the presence of God back into the camp of God's people. Verse 4. We'll get to, it'll be on the screen in just a second. I'm just reading a little bit extra than I, than I gave him. The whole assembly agreed to this for the people could see it was the right thing to do. So David summoned all Israel from a brook I can't pronounce in Egypt, in the south all the way to the land of someplace in the north I can't say, to join in bringing the ark of God from another place I can't say. Verse 6, then David and all Israel went to Baala of Judah. <laughs> says it right there. It's two A's. you got to really say it. To bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord who was enthroned between the cherubim. They placed, this is important, they placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house Uzzah and Ahau were guarding, were guiding the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, singing songs, playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. I want to make sure you get the picture. A bunch of people are singing worship songs, kind of like this morning, and then there's a few people who are making sure stuff gets done. I don't know if you're in the what's get done category, but sometimes we make people feel bad for not being like, come on, you should be like singing and going crazy. Somebody's got to make sure stuff's getting done, right? So Uzzah's one of the guys, and he's like, I will make sure that this gets done while the king and all those people are going crazy singing that song a million times, right? Verse 9, but when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacan, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him dead because he had laid his hand on the ark. So Uzzah died there in the presence of God, like literally died. Like not how some of us are like, if they sing that song again, I'm going to die. Right? Like he, he literally died. Reached his hand out, touched the ark, poof, gone. 
And I read that story, and I'm like, that's over the top, God. I don't understand. That's not fair. Until you dig a little deeper and you realize this, that David, the king, took shortcuts to get to the presence of God. Here's a few of them. First verse says that he consulted with his military men. Why? The, 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 the command of God was clear that the only people who were ever going to touch the ark or ever going to carry the ark were Levites, not people in the military. So David didn't go to the people he should have gone to. He went to military people. Like, give me a strategy. The, the ark was never supposed to be put on a cart. It was always supposed to be carried by hand. Poles would be slid through four holes, and they would have poles on each side, and they would carry them on their shoulder. Levites would pick that thing up and walk carrying it. Never supposed to be on a cart. But David took a shortcut. And he's like, you know what? It'll be quicker. It'll be faster. And we'll just do this. It'll be great. What's even crazier is that he copied the Philistines. Now, we don't have time to go into all this, right? But if you go back and look at 1 Samuel chapter 6, you'll find a story where the Philistines actually had the ark of God. And they decided we don't want the ark anymore. We're going to give it back to the Israelites. And somebody in the Philistine camp had this brilliant idea, probably because they didn't like the Jews and they didn't want to be around the Israelites. They didn't want to get shot and killed. So they're like, hey, let's hook up some animals to a cart and let's put the ark on the cart and we'll just like, yeah, and the ark will start going. And if it goes back to the camp of Israel, great. And if it doesn't, we'll figure out what to do next, right? And so you could just picture David and all the Israelites hanging out. And one day, these ox start coming to the camp. There's nobody with them. They're carrying a cart behind them that has the ark of God on it. And they're like, of course, what does David always do, right? Dancing like crazy, like a big dance party, like random dancing pops out. And they're all going crazy because the ark's back and God's presence back. Woo, yeah. Fast forward, and where did David get the idea for an ark? From a pagan culture, y'all. You can't take shortcuts with the presence of God. I can't shortcut to the presence of God copying the world. Well, maybe if we sing songs a certain way and make people feel just right, haze. Nothing wrong with it, right? But if my motivation is let's copy a really cool concert so people get all caught up in the moment and don't really give a rip about Jesus, but they sure are singing loud, what we've done is we just copied the way the world does stuff. And we took a shortcut to get to the presence of God, and people are going to die as a result. Taking a shortcut is costly. Why do people take shortcuts when they're costly? One simple reason. We want the easy way out. And Elijah didn't take it. Last point, let's just zip through this one really quick. Two things you need to know about how Elijah rebuilt the altar. He built it on history and he built it on unity. Okay? So it says that he rebuilt, he repaired the altar. What you need to see here is Elijah didn't come up with a snazzy blueprint for something even better than they ever had before. What he did was on the same spot where some other people had built an altar, he repaired that altar. He rebuilt that altar. Guys, we stand on the shoulders of people. It's not on us to come up with a brand new way to do church, a brand new way to serve the Lord. It's on us to rebuild what's been built before. 
to repair what might be broken now. Sometimes we can become so critical of how they used to do it that we think we're just going to come up with some brand new way. There's not a brand new way. There's not a brand new way. We actually rebuild the temple, the altar that was in ruins. He didn't get rid of it. He didn't replace it. He rebuilt it. We honor the heritage of people that had an alter ego before we ever came along. And if I asked you right now, and I won't do it, but you can do it in community groups this week, if I asked you to name people in your history that had an alter ego that whose lives were radically transformed because they were in the presence of God, my guess is you could start naming a few people that have had a major impact on your life just by watching them go hard after the presence of God. And Elijah didn't say, bump that. Let's do it my way. He rebuilt the altar. You know, you know what we found when we, when we um, rebuilt this whole facility? Hard. Really hard. Talk about not taking the easy way out. Like it's easier, it had been easier for Elijah to go, like, get rid of that mess and let's just start over. But he didn't. He didn't take the easy way out. He actually took a very costly way out. He rebuilt the altar. We're not doing something new. What we're doing is we're bringing a new passion and a new focus to what's already been done. A couple verses for you. Isaiah 58, 12. This is the result. Like we're in this period of fasting. This is the result of true fasting. It says this. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And that's good stuff, y'all. The goal of fasting is not to lose weight. It's to do that. To bring the kingdom of God to where we are. We meet at the altar. The goal of what we're doing right now is to rebuild the altar. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. This is, um, you ever ask God, what's my calling, Lord? Anybody ever prayed that? What do you want me to do, God? What's the purpose of my life, God? I got good news. I'm fixing to read it right now. Okay, here it is. This is your calling. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, to all the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They, everybody say, that's me. That's you, right? That's you and me. The people that are doing what we just read about, they will be called oaks of righteousness. Men, that should make you sit up straighter, suck your gut in, and flex, right? You're like, I am an oak right now, y'all. Come on. Yeah. You're, your spouse is, like, touching your arm going, you are a weeping willow, right? Like, I don't even know. I don't even know what's happening right now in this place, right? We are called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Verse 4, they. Everybody say, that's me. You didn't sound like you believe it, though. Say, they. That's me. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Y'all see, that's what Elijah was doing, right? He was doing that. It's what we're called to do as well. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. He built the altar on history. And then 
he took 12 stones. I love this part. He took 12 stones, and the 12 stones represented the 12 tribes of the people of God. And he put them together, and on the 12 stones, he rebuilt the altar. He rebuilt the altar on unity. But not just that. Check this out. That was a prophetic, a prophetic act by Elijah. Because at the time that he took 12 stones and made them into one pile so he could build the altar on that, those 12 stones were really 10 stones and 2 stones. Because they were a divided kingdom. There were 10 in the northern kingdom and there were 2 in the southern kingdom. And instead of saying, well, we'll just do it like it is, he said, no, 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 no. The altar of God will not be rebuilt on separation. The altar of God will be rebuilt on unity. And he pulled those 12 together, and he showed them, like, on unity, this is where God rebuilds the altar. One, one thing I want you to see is Psalm 133. We won't read the whole thing. It's just three or four verses. But it talks about unity and how beautiful unity is for the Lord. And so, like it says, it's like dew just flowing down from the mountain. It's like oil running down onto Aaron's beard. It's like if you just imagine pouring oil on somebody's head, it would just boop, 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 boop all the way down. And the last verse says about, about unity, it says that there God commands his blessing. God blesses us when we walk in unity. He built it on history, and he built it on unity. So here's, here's the third point. Look back and look around. If you, want to, if you want to rebuild the altar in your life, look back at your history. Look back and see who in your history has been committed to an altar ego. And then look around this room. If you're, if you're sitting there going, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody that wants to rebuild the altar. You should come on on Wednesday night, y'all. This place is full of people rebuilding the altar. It's crazy. Who comes to pray on Wednesday night? Uh, people that want to rebuild the altar, right? There are people all around us in this church, in other churches, in our city. Like, and what I love is we, we don't want to like ruin the whole story, but at the end of that story, you know what Elijah found out? He wasn't the only one. There were thousands that God had reserved. They just weren't with him. He couldn't see them, but there are people all in our city that are committed to rebuilding the altar. Man, look back. And look around. What happens when God answers by fire? The better question is, have we given God anything to answer? Have we rebuilt the passion of meeting with him? Have we rebuilt this passion that no matter what it costs us, we're going to be all in on rebuilding the altar? I love this quote from Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday's, this is a flashback to way, way back. I, I, I don't even know. Nobody here could have been alive during Billy Sunday, I don't think, during Billy Sunday. But he's a famous evangelist. And listen to what he said. He said, but before God will pay attention to a call for fire, Christians must get right. It's a great mistake to expect a crop without planting a seed. It's a great mistake to expect a blessing without first doing your part. Listen, God's part is to answer by fire. Our part is to give him somewhere to answer it. That's how we're rebuilding the altar. Before we can see the fire of God, we've got to rebuild the altar of God. And so here's how we're going to close this this morning. I've spared no expense to bring in Elevation's worship band. I thought it was a great little line there. And, and, and we're just going to play a song by them. It's called Hallelujah Here Below. And here's why we're going to play it, because the first line, man, just jumped out of iTunes at me. It's 
so where this message is. Lyrics will be up on this on the screen so you can sing along if you want to. But I want to give you the chance to right now personally kind of re, start to rebuild the altar. And what does that look like? It looks like this. God, I just want my life to be defined by an encounter with you that transformed me. I want to have an altar ego, empty myself of who I am, as broken as I might be, so that you can fill me with your presence and give me your identity and define who I am based on you and your presence. In your name, Jesus.